I was making sure that was my cue to come up. Good evening, all you beautiful women out there. I'm so happy to be with you this evening. Okay, so my name is Dr. Carolyn Yeager. Uh, my name, name was Carolyn Voda. I grew up in Oceanside. I spent a lot of time down here. I had lots of family who lived down here. My husband and I lived down here the first year that we were married in 1985. Um, I've been with my husband almost 40 years. So it was very exciting to drive down here today when Father Brian asked me to come down. And I called my mom who uh, has significant dementia, but she remembers a lot of things from a long time ago, so I challenged her. She's in Florida. Guess where I am? And we played that game. I said, I'm looking at the ocean. And she said, don't tell me you're in Long Beach. <laughs> I said, yes, I'm in Long Beach. How exciting is that? And I haven't been here for a long time, but I spent a lot of time down here growing up. And now I live in Huntington, which is the opposite end. I married a man from Pennsylvania who did not like the flat South Shore. So I said, well, we have another shore. We can go up there and stay there. And we're very happy there. So um, I am a um, clinical and school psychologist. I don't work as a school psychologist anymore, but I am a licensed psychologist. I am an associate professor at St. Joseph's Seminary, also known as Dunwoody. And I teach there. I go to Yonkers to teach. Not a lot, but I do go to Yonkers to teach. And I used to teach at the Seminary of the Immaculate Conception in Huntington, and guess who I taught? <laughs> we had a conversation this week about people saying, you know, how old is she if she taught you at the seminary? Hmm. So I started teaching there when I was 28, actually. Uh, so that was a long time ago. I'm turning 60 this year. Get that out of the way. And. Uh, I'm happy to be here. So I teach seminarians, I teach them in their first year and in their fourth year, I teach them um, an introduction to psychology because the seminary at Dunwoody has men from all over the world with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of religious orders. It's absolutely fascinating. Every one of you would be fascinated by it. I'm constantly fascinated by it. That's why I drive to Yonkers. And so I teach them an introduction to psychology to get everybody at the same place. And then in the fourth year, I teach them pastoral counseling. So I've been doing it for about 31 years because my son, my oldest son is 32. And I have a 30-year-old daughter and a 27-year-old son. And my 30-year-old daughter will be celebrating, we were just talking about this, her uh, first wedding anniversary tomorrow. So she got married right smack in the middle of the pandemic. She was supposed to get married uh, May 9th of last year, but our priest who, a priest who we mutually love, sort of secretly snuck us into church and with eight people she got married. She was supposed to get married at St. Patrick's Cathedral with a reception at the Bronx Zoo. So she rescheduled that for August and then canceled that and then rescheduled it for this July and in this past week canceled that because tomorrow's her one year anniversary. So I said, have a baby and knock it off with all this wedding stuff. <laughs> She's gonna be 60. My mother was 48 when uh, she became a grandmother. So I'd like to be able to get down on the ground and, and be with them. But that's a small introduction. I've been working actually with priests forever um, I do a lot of lecturing around. I've done about seven Zoom, Google Meets, 
FaceTime workshops with a whole variety of people on coping with COVID. So um, no one wants to cope with COVID anymore. No one wants to talk about coping with COVID anymore. But in the beginning, that's all anyone wanted to talk about. So with all different populations, I did that. And so it's not unusual for a priest to say, just get up there and talk about whatever you want, because they know that I can talk on a lot of different subjects. But talking about being a woman of faith and seeing you all out at night. I invited myself to dinner, by the way, because I don't like to drive both ways in the dark. And I miss Father Brian and um, Father Leo. I worked with him as well, and I wanted a chance to, to get together. But I easily can talk about becoming and being a woman of faith. And Sometimes I feel like everybody treats me like I'm so weird that I have so much faith that like, go oh, talk about your faith, talk about how you have faith. Um, but it's, it doesn't feel weird to me. It feels the way it feels. But what I would like to do tonight um, in the semi-dark is read my notes and talk to you um, from maybe a little bit of a different perspective in that um, one of the things that I teach in, in teaching about counseling is for anybody who took a psychology class in college, there was a psychologist, his name was Eric Erickson, and he developed what was called a psychosocial model of development stages over the lifespan. And I love his model. I encourage you, especially if you're still in the stage of raising children, any stage it's important, but especially I, I do these talks, which I haven't done now for two years because of COVID, with uh, parent groups at a particular church where I get about 150 people at each one. I've been, I was doing them for like 11 years in a row. And I taught them the eight stages of psychosocial development. So it means your psychological and your social development from birth to death. And that if you understand where your children are at in their real developmental stages all the way through, it makes a lot of sense. And I thought for today, I thought, well, what about I try to teach, nothing I teach from psychology is spiritually oriented from the secular world of psychology, but I don't have any problem matching it up to incorporate faith into all of these things. It works really, really well. So it's the idea of at the same time that we're all developing from, from birth, we're developing spiritually and all the way through, and we should never stop developing spiritually. All right, so I'm gonna put my glasses on and start with, you know, we start from early birth and we talk about how parents are planning a christening to have a child have that second birth into the Catholic Church. A, a second birth that the baby is not aware of, but the parents are starting the journey of having them have faith. By second grade, we're asking God to forgive our sins when we're children and demonstrating that we're ready to participate in the Holy Eucharist. We know as children that when someone we love dies, if you are raised in faith, you believe that that person has gone to heaven. Um, I had a little problem with my daughter when she was four because my grandmother was dying. And every time we'd visit her, I would say, this might be the last time we see Nana before she goes to heaven. Got them all ready, Nana passes. We all get it. I mentioned something with the three kids, they were little, six, four, one, and I mentioned something about my Nana, and my daughter goes, Nana, Nana's dead, why are you talking about her? And I was like, you're a horrible little person. 
but we're allowed to still talk about people. And she goes, but Nana's in heaven. She's fine. Like, we don't have to talk about her anymore. And I thought, oh, she has faith. It's just she's a brat. And she just doesn't want to talk about anything that's not important, which is still true at 30. But, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing as we raise our children and keep going forward. Um, as we enter into the teen years, we, for the first time, confirm our belief in God, Jesus Christ, and the sacraments in the act of confirmation. Again, building and actually having a psychological uh, and somewhat intellectual understanding. We have to remember, though, that does anybody know? I won't make you answer. Uh, at what point your frontal lobe, uh, the frontal lobe and frontal cortex of your brain is fully developed? It's about 25, which is a very scary notion because we expect that kids know what they're doing and that kids understand things and they can reason and they're really not fully grown. So when they're teenagers, they're not really developed yet, but they are moving towards an adult faith and hoping that we all hope that our children will um, make the choice to be a practicing Catholic as an adult. So along the way, we go forward with marriage and children and careers and interpersonal relationships. They're all psychosocial events that are happening simultaneously as hopefully we are deepening in our faith, in our journey along the way in, um, with all of our ups and downs and good and bad and strong and weak Catholic practices. We hopefully in faith are very grateful for the good things that happen and enjoy the support that we get when things are happening and when things are bad or even horrible, we sit on our faith. We go through our tough times with faith. But I always wonder, and I started off, I was gonna maybe talk about like, how do they do it? How do people without faith get through life? How do people without faith get through deaths and suffering and all of the things that our faith comforts us with when you don't have that faith, what do you do? So I'll pick on my daughter tonight. So when she was about eight years old, all of my kids were competitive swimmers all the way through college. So we spent a lot of time at pools and a lot of their friends were their swimming friends. And it was Lent and she came out of the locker room and she said, Lisa won't talk to me anymore. I said, well, I won't Lisa talk to you anymore. And she goes, well, it's Lisa's birthday, and I told her happy birthday, and she had a big box, and she had four cupcakes in the box, and she said, I choose you because you're my friend to give one of the cupcakes to you. You know, the cupcakes with a huge frosting this big. And she said, thank you, Lisa, but I can't, I can't have it. She said, why can't you have it? And she said, well, I gave up sweets for Lent. And the girl said, who cares? The parents can't see us. Take the cupcake. And she goes, but I can't. I gave it up for Lent. She said, I'm not going to tell anybody. You're not going to tell anybody. If you're friend, my friend, you'll take the cupcake. Nobody will know. That's what she said. And my daughter said, but God will know. And the kid said, well, you're not my friend anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And she was so upset. And I kept saying to her, I know this is hard for you to understand, but this child has no concept of what you're talking about. This little girl is not being raised with any sense of God 
or conscience or any reason why if you could cheat or sneak or trick or lie, why shouldn't you do it? No one will know. No sense of that. And there's a huge difference in how people grow up with an example like that. That's, that was a very upsetting example, but so for me, I, I understand that faith changes with life changes. Um, as we move through life, I would also say that we all know, every, again, every woman here, we all know people who seem to have had a very charmed life when they were young. We all look at people who like, oh, that family's got everything going on. They have money. They have beautiful kids, nice house. Everybody's at their pool. And there are a lot of people who do have like charmed lives when they're young. And then some of those people have very difficult lives when they're older. And the reverse is true. Some people have rough, rough, rough childhoods. I have a friend who had a very rough childhood. And she once told me the story that she, her father had left the family again. And she was sitting on the porch. And they took her out of, she was going to St. Bridget's, actually. And she had to get out of Catholic school because there was no money. She sat on her porch crying. And she said, OK, God, I'm going to make a deal with you this has been a terrible life so far and I'm very unhappy, but if you give me the right husband, I won't be mad at you for the rest of my life. <laughs> so she married St. James, her husband, who takes very good care of her and she always, always talks about how the deal she made with God through faith and that's how she got through that. But I think it's a really important, it's even like a scriptural fact. I don't know if we ever say that scriptural fact, but to me it's a scriptural fact that not everyone's portion is the same. Sometimes people think it's supposed to even out or it's supposed to, if this happened to me, then this shouldn't happen to me. Good things shouldn't happen to bad people. If I pray, well, you know, the whole, all the suffering stuff. But the Bible says that it doesn't work like that. And you know, in a room full of mostly women, I see some males here, um, we've all had different life journeys. And um, some of us had well-behaved children. Some of us had badly behaved children. Someone, some had easy, some had difficult children. Um, maybe some people had fertility problems that people knew about or they didn't know about, economic ups and downs, good and bad jobs, and good and bad marriages. You may be currently sitting there facing terrible impacts that happened as a result of the last year. Um, I know people who made a fortune for different reasons with COVID, and I know people who went bankrupt. Not everybody knows everybody in this room and what they've been through, but everybody's been through all kinds of individual situations that I believe, um, no matter how different all of those things, we share the most important thing being here tonight and that is our faith. If you're telling a woman that something bad is happening to you, a woman of faith, you tell her something's bad happened, she says, I'll pray for you. If someone tells you something bad that's happening to them, they say, I'll pray for you. And that's a beautiful thing. We, as women of faith, lift each other up. We don't break each other down. You know, gossip is one of those things that most women have to work on. And I have some very faithful women who they have great things that they'll do. I have one friend that if anybody starts to gossip about a situation, she'll say, oh, excuse me, were you there? I was just wondering, were you there? And it makes everybody very uncomfortable because it's like, no, I wasn't there. I shouldn't be saying anything. And I have another friend that when any, anyone gossips about anyone, she'll say, 
and we love her anyway, right? And these two women in particular, they're the ones that fight everybody online. They're constantly in Facebook fights with everybody. And um, every once in a while I go in and try to say something and then I pull myself right out. And I say, why do you engage in these things? And they're like, I have to. It's our responsibility as women of faith. You can't let people say those things. And I say, well, it's a good thing you don't have a job because it's exhausting to do that stuff all day long. But um, I think that when I go down to the last part of what I want to say today is that when things get really rough, again, as women of faith, when things get really rough, I was thinking of Psalm 23, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I found something very interesting on the meaning of the rod and staff and why that is used in Psalm 23. And, you know, it starts right off Psalm 23 with equating the Lord with a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We all know that part. Um, and a shepherd might use a staff as something to lean on in case the ground is not dry or safe for sitting or for support when he needed rest during long shifts tending sheep. So the staff represents a symbol that we too can find rest when we lean on the Lord. When we lean into him, he'll lean into us. The staff is our rescue. God also uses his staff to rescue us from difficult or dangerous situations. In the field, a shepherd would use the curly end of a staff to pull a sheep out of a thick brush or to lift it if it happened to fall or be injured. God rescues us in the same way. The staff is also used to guide sheep across fields and along rocky um, hillsides, handy tool for making sure they stay on track. In terms of the rod, we know that the rod was used to defend sheep against predators. Since sheep aren't very smart, it was up to the shepherd to adequately defend his flock, so a nice hard rod made for a solid weapon against any enemies. In this way, the rod is a symbol of God's protection. He goes before you to defend you from your enemies. So I think that, again, when things get rough, we have to pull out our weapons. I don't keep a rod and staff in the house, but I brought my arsenal of weapons. That's why I had a silly bag coming up here, and I just wanted to share with you some of my weapons. I'm sure some of you use these weapons. Let's go over what I have. I have a lot. Okay, so who do I read when I want to be inspired? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa wrote a book called In My Own Words. Does anybody here have this little book? Okay, this book, it was recommended to me um, by a priest in confession, and I have lots of bookmarks in it, and uh, I learned something that I think every one of you should know if you don't already know it. Um, I won't recite the Memorare, some of you know it, some of you don't, but Mother Teresa talks about the Memorare and the power of the Memorare. And you can do a Memorare, which is a prayer that is good to know by heart um, if you say it nine, nine over nine days. But Mother Teresa talks about all of these tricky situations she would get in where she needed to do an express novena, and so she would say nine novenas in a row. So when my cousin wrote to all of us and said, we need prayers, my mother's in, um, just was put on a ventilator about um, a month and a half ago. I wrote it out and I said, everybody say in a memorare nine times right now. It's a weapon and I use it, okay? 
Um, what is Father Pio? What did St. Pio always say was the weapon? His weapon of choice was the rosary. Okay? I don't care how stressed you are, if you can do a rosary the right way, it can bring you almost instant peace. It could make you fall asleep. I have mine all decorated with all kinds of saint medals at each place because I like to keep busy. I'm a multitasker, so I like to pray to a lot of people at the same time. This book that's almost completely tattered is a consecration book. Does anybody do consecrations? Consecrations are beautiful things. It's a 40-day preparation. I do it on my wedding anniversary, and it ends on the um, Feast of the Assumption. And again, a beautiful thing. What else? This one just passed, Divine Mercy. Does anybody do Divine Mercy? Do you celebrate Divine Mercy here? Oh! Okay, so Divine Mercy, all of these prayers are so powerful. And I mean, I did, I'm not even going to recommend this one because this one was a little crazy. Because when my friend told me about it, I said, I'm so mad at you. Because when someone tells me a prayer that they think I should do, I do it. There's a set of St. Bridget prayers, if anybody knows them, you do them for 12 years. I did those for 12 years. I had a friend who did 12 years per her four children. Okay. This is a good one, and it just ended on Sunday. In the hour of divine mercy, Jesus, I trust in you. You can request anything. So I'm going to share a little something, too, that I keep going back and forth about whether I was going to share it, because I just shared it with Father Brian. So about three weeks ago, I had one of those tests that we all have every year that we hate, and it came out bad. And so for the last three weeks, I've been planning a surgery and doing all that. And so, um, so then I broke out some of my really powerful stuff. And I went and found, this is uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. If you don't know who she was, it's a relic. And she's been over here for a while. And she was a saint who had five children. An amazing, amazing saint. And then I went and found my St. Pio, his relic. And every night he gets a place on my boob, too. And uh, I have another friend who is um, uh, advancing a cause of a nun to become a saint, and she was beatified. So they told me put her under the pillow, too. Jesus Calling. Some of you know these books. Because people give me all this stuff. Um, Jesus Always, all the daily things. I get stuff on my... Um, on my computer every day. My husband and I play a little game where I put prayer cards everywhere and he takes them down and gives them back to me. I've been doing that for a long time. One day my husband came home. We weren't married that long and he goes, we have to have a talk. I said, about what? He goes, I think you keep forgetting that I'm not Italian. I said, what does that mean? He goes, no more statues. That's it. So one of my kids was learning how to drive and ran over a stupid statue of raccoons that he bought me. And I go, oh, 
I, this, it just blew up. He ran right over it. I go, I got to have another statue to replace that one. I said I wouldn't have any more, but I could keep the number equal. So, I mean, I'm being a little silly, and, you know, what I'm talking about for myself is very serious, but um, my faith is going to get me through everything, and I know that. And I'm going to be okay, thank God. I don't have a terrible diagnosis. I'm just going to deal with it. And, uh, you know, my family around me, they keep looking at me, and they keep waiting for something to break. And I'm like, look at the weapons that I have. Look at the, what I have behind me. How do people do it without faith? How do they do it? You know, the last stage of Erickson's theory, um, I actually published an article in the Journal of Pastoral Counseling about this. Every stage of life has like these little conflicts that you come out with one way or the other. And the last stage is entering around 65 when you start to look back on your life. You're starting to reflect on things that you've done. And, and the stage struggle is do you look at your life with a sense of integrity or with a sense of despair? Are you proud of the life that you had and what you did and, and your, your legacy and all of that, or, or are you despairing? And, you know, if you're despairing, you better get to work quick. But the idea is that we live this life because we choose this life. We choose our faith. We could choose any faith. My 27-year-old son once, um, they all went through Catholic elementary school, and they were talking about countries. And... Um, he told, no, they were talking about different religions, and he raised his hand, he was in third grade, and he told the teacher that he was Lutheran. And the teacher said, Christian Yeager, you're not Lutheran, you're Catholic. I've had your brother and your sister, you're all Catholic. And he goes, no, no, I, I, I know I am, I'm Lutheran. And they, she said, no, you're not. She went on to something else. All of a sudden, he raised his hand, he goes, I know what I am, I'm Lithuanian. <laughs> My husband's Lithuanian. So we choose our faith. We don't always choose our genetic background. We don't choose how we suffer. But I think it's really important. I, again, everyone in the room has something that they're praying about, and everyone in the room is being heard. And that's what it means to be a woman of faith, to me. It's pretty simple and pretty complicated. It's pretty profound, and it's pretty not profound. Good. I want him to be proud of me. Okay, can I leave this all here? You want me to take it down now? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.